The 2023 spring legislative session has come to an end. Today, the CNI news team will try to unpack what happened and what didn't happen. That's coming up on this edition of Capital Cast. Hello and welcome to Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News Illinois. I'm Peter Hancock. Illinois lawmakers have wrapped up their spring legislative session with the passage of a budget for the upcoming fiscal year, as well as a mountain of other legislation. Here to talk about some of the highlights of the session is the Capital News Illinois team, including our State House Bureau Chief Jerry Nowicki, fellow reporters Hannah Meisel and Andrew Adams, and our public affairs reporting intern Nika Schoonover. So, Jerry, let's start with you. Uh, the budget, of course, is the biggest thing that uh, usually happens in a session. What kind of a budget did we end up with this year? And what are some of the highlights of it? Yeah, it's about $50.6 billion. It's pretty close to what the governor had proposed in February, although there's about a, a billion dollars more in spending approved in it than than what the governor had proposed um, it once again passed on partisan lines, although there was some thought that Senate Republicans might put some votes to it. Ultimately, they um, pulled their support, uh, partially at least, because it didn't include $75 million for an Invest in Kids uh, scholarship program um, that sort of just allowed tax breaks for people who donate to scholarships to send people to private schools. Um, so what some of the main um, things you're looking at, I think you will talk more about the governor's smart start plan, which is uh, $250 million in new money to try to uh, make preschool available to wh whoever wants it, including just in areas where they don't have it that they call preschool deserts. Um, the $350 million K-12 education new funding that is called for each year under the funding formula that was approved. Um, both sides of the aisle were happy with that. Um, there's an $85 million increase for programs to fight homelessness. That includes uh, things like rapid rehousing, homelessness prevention. Uh, there's $20 million for a grocery initiative that gives grants to um, so-called food uh, or grocers in food deserts in underserved rural towns and urban neighborhoods. There's increases to a lot of Medicaid providers, including those serving individuals with disabilities in community settings. There's 10% increases for Medicaid reimbursement rates for hospitals. Really, it's a lot of the stuff that the governor had proposed uh, in February. And I think you're going to go also go into um, some added money for higher education. Well, yeah, and I guess what struck me about it was, first of all, this was our first, I guess you could call it a post-pandemic budget. Um, and it kind of goes back to, I think, some of the things that Governor Pritzker wanted to accomplish maybe in the first couple of years, but that got, you know, starting in 2020, just completely overshadowed by the pandemic. Uh, but yeah, you talked about uh, the increased uh, funding for uh, child care, early childhood education programs, uh, preschool and early childhood daycare, with the goal, uh, according to the governor, of making 
daycare and preschool available and affordable uh, to every Illinois family that wants it. And then another pretty big increase in funding for higher education, uh, again, with the goal that uh, what he says is that with the increases in the MAP grants and the AIM High scholarship program, uh, it increases basically, you know, student financial aid and increased funding for operating budgets. Uh, every working class student in Illinois, if you come from a middle or moderate or low income family, should be able to go to two years of community college tuition and fee paid for, uh, which is a pretty big deal, uh, given that we now yeah. live in an economy when a high school diploma doesn't get you as far as it used to. Uh, right. Well, and that pro that too, the governor said, you know, that that's uh, between the state funding and Pell grants is, is kind of what makes that available. Well, yeah, you have to consider uh, the federally funded Pell grants are part of the mix there too. Um, so anyway, some pretty major investments in education and in early childhood, along with, uh, you know, the normal $350 million increase in K-12 education through the evidence-based funding formula. Right. Uh, and so that, sorry to interrupt, that smart start money is also part of a multi-year plan where I think they want to add 20,000 so-called daycare slots, just, I mean, uh, the availability to take on 20,000 more kids over a period of years with, with this year's, uh, including uh, 5,000 new slots. 5,000 new slots this year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, we'll see how that goes. Uh, I think there that was also one of the Republicans' concerns about the budget was that, uh, I think it was Tony McCombie, the House Republican leader, who said, you know, everybody can get behind the idea of this Smart Start program. Uh, but their concern is, you know, this is a multi-year commitment, and do we have any guarantee that we're going to be able to fund you know, all four years of this and keep it going into the future. Uh, so, you know, that was one of their and, concerns. And that was one of the interesting things to me. We saw the last two years where um, maybe these higher than expected revenues were used to increase funding to pensions, to build up the rainy day fund, to do a lot of debt retirement stuff. Um, but now with this budget, it's essentially built in with the same baseline revenue numbers as the current year. So essentially they're they're banking on that money uh, becoming recurring with the amount of spending they've approved in this one. And um, oh, the other thing I wanted to note on the budget though is they did include another $200 million beyond the statutorily required pension payment, which is you know sound fiscal policy anyway you really look at it. So that's another thing the governor has been um, uh, focusing on in the last couple of years. Uh, Andrew, let's turn to you. Uh, what were some of the big things that you were following? I want to focus on two big pieces of legislation that passed in the final days of session. Uh, the first one is a bill that uh, places new restrictions on the red light camera industry and politicians uh, in Springfield and in local governments. So basically, this bill bars anyone involved in leadership within the industry or any of the companies involved in this industry from making donations to uh, political campaigns for individual candidates. 
It also places restrictions on uh, local officials and state lawmakers from accepting jobs or contracts with companies in the red light and speed camera industries uh, while they're in office and for two years afterwards. Okay. And so for people from downstate Illinois who aren't familiar with these things, these are automated devices that are installed at certain high-risk intersections, uh, and they generate automatic traffic tickets if you run a red light or you make an illegal turn or whatever. Um, and there has been a history. A number of former legislators have been uh, convicted of accepting bribes and taking improper payments from these companies in exchange for uh getting them installed in places. And of course they generate these tickets and then the company uh, makes a commission off of every ticket that uh, is issued. Uh, didn't the bill also say that uh, the companies can no longer just issue tickets automatically, that now only a municipality can issue a citation? Exactly. One of the selling points for these systems is that they'll generate the ticket automatically. They'll mail it out. They'll handle all of that. But uh, under this proposed legislation, the municipality in question, so a city or a county basically, would, would have to make the ultimate decision. They'd have to review it and say, you know, this incident is worthy of a ticket or this incident is not worthy of a ticket. They can't basically contract that decision out to these companies. Okay, now there were a number of uh, former legislators, like I said, and maybe some local government officials who have uh, been indicted and convicted uh, of taking bribes and improper payments from these companies. Uh, and so this legislation kind of cuts them out of the political process. But red light cameras are not the only source of political corruption in Illinois. As I was pointing out, you know, the bill uh, makes no mention of publicly traded public utilities, for example, uh, who have uh, been at the center of other controversies. So was this just kind of window dressing to make it look like the legislature was doing something uh, about corruption and ethics enforcement? Well, that's an interesting question. Some of the advocates I spoke to uh, for our story on this were said that this is potentially a first step right? There was a, there's been a series, I think by our account, we, we saw two members of the state Senate who were charged with, you know, bribery relating to um, individuals within the red light camera industry, uh, one of whom pled guilty and one of whom has so far uh, pled not guilty. And, you know, several local municipal officials in Chicago and the suburbs, but, you know, folks who were supportive of this bill said, that some of the provisions gave them hope that there might be further action in the future. In particular, this is the first time that a two-year ban on officials working uh, in a particular industry or in a particular you know, fashion has been seriously considered. A couple of years ago, the General Assembly put a six-month ban on kind of lobbying activities for former lawmakers. And at that time, two years was something that was brought up, but it was never seriously on the table. Now with this, things could be shifting. Okay. Uh, and you mentioned 
there were two major pieces of legislation that you were following. The red light cameras was one. Absolutely. The other one that really caught my attention was a piece of energy legislation that was really down to the wire. It was introduced uh, on Thursday, passed on Friday, and we adjourned in the early hours of Saturday morning. This bill does a lot of things. There's several provisions, but the, the key one, the, the one that drew the most controversy was definitely a measure that would give the so-called right of first refusal to uh, utilities operating in the downstate areas of Illinois. Notably, this is Ameren, although there are uh, other utilities in downstate. And what right of first refusal means is that if the grid operator for downstate Illinois approves a project that says we need new transmission lines, uh, then the existing utility, which for most of downstate is Ameren, Illinois, would have the, the option to say, all right, we will take this contract, essentially locking any competitors out of the process entirely. It replaces a system of competitive bids in which other companies might you know, offer transmission line construction for less money or for a different time scale. And there was that generated a lot of controversy. Uh, and in fact, I think the governor has, didn't you report that the governor has said he's not really wild about that idea? Yes, uh, it generated uh, some significant opposition. Um, an interesting blend of kind of advocacy groups opposed to the um, bill. This includes, uh, you know, environmentalists, uh, business community groups, uh, chambers of commerce, that kind of thing. Interestingly, it also drew opposition from the state's attorney general. And like you said, the governor has promised to veto it, something that he hasn't done much in his uh, years in office. Yeah, I, I actually ran some numbers on that, and I think it was only about 17 vetoes. We really haven't seen a veto fight between the governor and the General Assembly, um, maybe on a, a couple bills where the, one particularly pertaining to aircraft uh, tax breaks that um, was eventually overridden. But I don't think I've really seen too much of a veto fight. So it'd be interesting to watch uh, if he does indeed veto that. Exactly. And I think it's interesting because you need a three-fifths majority in the legislature to override a veto. And this proposal got that in the Senate, but it did not reach a three-fifths majority in the House. So if there is an appetite for a veto fight over this bill, some conversations are going to need to happen, at least in the House, over who's ultimately going to support this. Well, and one thing to keep in mind is that a vote in favor of a bill and a vote to override the veto of a governor from your own party are two entirely different votes. So exactly. Um, we'll see how much political capital, if there is a veto, we'll see how much political capital uh, the governor still wields in the legislature. Okay, so moving on, let's go to Hannah Meisel. Hannah, you covered quite a number of things throughout the session. Uh, while you were also uh, covering a trial up in Chicago, uh, what were some of the highlights that you remember from the session? Well, like you said, I was kind of out of commission on covering session for those eight weeks. I was covering the ComEd trial up in Chicago. But when I got back to Springfield for the last two, which turned into three uh, weeks before we ultimately adjourned um, 3 a.m. Uh, last Saturday, uh, I focused on a couple interesting um, 
issues that would kind of change Illinois' legal landscape. Uh, Peter, you and I kind of covered twin bills that were both pushed by uh, the attorney general's office. Um, one of them uh, was to kind of expand the attorney general's investigative role when it comes to these things called crisis pregnancy centers, also known as limited care pregnancy centers. Um, basically, this is another step in uh, making Illinois a kind of haven for those who come to seek abortions and for uh, obviously uh, existing citizens in Illinois. Um, as more uh, states around us uh, restrict abortion. And so these crisis pregnancy uh, centers, there are, gosh, about 100 in Illinois, and that's compared to the 35 or so providers, when you also include hospitals, uh, that provide abortions. These are, they can range anywhere from like a really limited kind of um, you know, we're open a few hours, a few days a week, and we offer counseling, sometimes pregnancy tests, and sometimes they have, uh, you know, actual medical professionals on staff who can, uh, you know, they'll offer ultrasounds. Um, but the, the ultimate goal of these CPCs is to deter people from having abortion. So, you know, if I Google, uh, you know, abortion near me, Google in the last few years has, um, you know, taken its stance on labeling these CPDCs and they say, you know, does not provide abortions, but uh, maybe I don't see that. Maybe I, uh, you know, maybe I'm not Googling it. Maybe I'm seeing um, a billboard on the street because certainly uh, there are uh, many of those. And I go to one of these CPCs if I think I'm pregnant and um, they will, you know, do their darndest to, uh, sway me from having an abortion and to keep, uh, you know, the pregnancy and, you know, either, you know, convince me that I can be a parent or convince me that uh, adoption is the way to go. Mm. Um, and so Democrats, um, were on board with the attorney general's, uh, suggested bill to, uh, one, expand its powers of investigation, but also if I, as a citizen, or, you know, another entity, maybe the Planned Parenthood, uh, wanted to sue over, uh, you know, basically saying that what the CPCs are engaging is, it's quote unquote fraud. Uh, you know, we can bring that under Illinois' uh, decades old consumer uh, fraud law. Um, and Peter, you covered a bill that's similar to this. Uh, but just for the gun industry. Want to tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, again, this was the attorney general kind of uh, broadening the powers and the scope of his office uh, to put the entire gun industry under the jurisdiction of the state's uh, Consumer Fraud and Protection Act. Um, and essentially uh, saying, putting a lot more restrictions on how gun manufacturers and gun dealers can market products, uh, making clear that they cannot market to children uh, and giving the attorney general power as well as consumers uh, power to, uh, authority to sue manufacturers and gun dealers if they violate, uh, you know, the state's basic consumer protection law. Uh, he explained that he was trying to make it clear there is a federal law 
that immunizes the gun industry. So if a gun is used in a crime, you can't sue the gun manufacturer or the gun store that sold it uh, because they're not responsible for what happens afterwards. And the Attorney General Raul was saying that that has led to the misperception that the gun industry is completely immune from any kind of lawsuit. And so he wanted to make it clear that uh, in Illinois, they will not be immune. Interestingly, there was another bill also kind of related uh, to the gun issue. Uh, there have been a number of lawsuits filed in different counties, primarily in southern Illinois, challenging the constitutionality of the uh, assault weapons ban that lawmakers passed back in January. Uh, there were uh, lawsuits in a uh, number of counties in state courts, as well as in federal court in the Southern District of Illinois, uh, places where the plaintiffs thought they would get uh, friendlier judges and more favorable rulings. And to a large extent, they did. So this bill says that in any lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of a statute or an act of um, a public official, it has to be filed in Sangamon County or Cook County. Uh, you can't go venue shopping, uh, you know, picking a county to try and get the uh, the best judge. And when opponents to that bill said, you know, what's the problem? And they said, well, you know, the attorney general just has limited staff and limited resources. He can't be, you know, running from courthouse to courthouse all over the state. And their response was, well, he seems to have plenty of resources to go after these crisis pregnancy centers, and he has plenty of resources to go after gun dealers. But all of a sudden, when it comes to defending statutes uh, from constitutional lawsuits, he, he wants to pick his venues and put it solely in uh, Sangamon or Cook County. Uh, so we'll see what the governor does with that, and we'll see uh, how it affects uh, the jurisprudence of uh, constitutional lawsuits uh, going forward. But it was just, it, uh, kind of an interesting argument that on the one hand, he's really trying to expand the scope of his office in areas like protecting abortion access and uh, reining in the gun industry. Uh, but then he wanted to uh, you know, rein in where constitutional lawsuits can be filed. So uh, just a lot of legislation affecting the attorney general's office, and we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, you know, I think that these three uh, definitely are interesting and kind of are emblematic about where the Democratic Party, uh, you know, the Democrats who control Illinois state government are kind of at. Uh, they have, you know, they're seeking to wield more um, power through the judiciary. And, you know, especially on this um the bill that you just described, Peter, the constitutional uh, challenges, this is something we both covered this. And what is so interesting is like, we, we've seen this so very starkly in the last few years, because it's not just uh, the lawsuits on the state level against um, Illinois' uh, ban on assault style weapons uh, from January, but it's also, uh, we saw this approach uh, with state's attorneys suing over um, Illinois' cashless bail provision of the Safety Act, uh, which is still, you know, playing out in courts. And we also uh, saw this many times, um, ch constitutional challenges to the governor's 
COVID restriction uh, orders in 2020, 2021. Um, this venue shopping thing is really interesting um, in the, I can't remember if it was Senate or House debate, uh, Tom DeVore, who was, of course, the failed Republican uh, attorney general candidate from last year, he was obliquely referred to as the, you know, a person who engaged in, uh, you know, this sort of thing kind of enriched and, uh, you know, himself made himself famous. Um, at one point, he was charging uh, plaintiffs $200 to, you know, kind of be co-signed onto uh, these COVID lawsuits. Um, and, you know, John Harmon, the Senate president, especially, he did have a point that these lawsuits are um, pretty much always consolidated and sent to the Illinois Supreme Court, which is situated in both Singman and Cook counties. And he's, you know, the patchwork of rulings, even though I did look back in my memory, uh, my memory was actually more chaotic uh, than the reality. I, I, I guess I thought that there were a lot more conflicting rulings than um, had actually happened. But still, lots of confusion um, when you have uh, conflicting rulings and, uh, you know, no matter what, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, especially, um, you know, when it came to those COVID restrictions, uh, you know, in February of 2022, uh, we saw, you know, the mask restriction came tumbling down, um, you know, even before the issue actually went before uh, higher courts. Um, but this is, I don't know, I just think it's emblematic of where the Democratic Party is um, at in wielding uh, power. And um, I don't know, I, I, I think that especially the, you know, the two or bills that would, you know, allow people to sue crisis pregnancy centers and gun manufacturers under the Illinois Consumer Fraud Act. That is kind of a unique use of the law. And I think Democrats um, are trying to kind of experiment uh, in, in, in ways that Illinois just becomes more and more different from its neighbors um, because, you know, we've seen the federal judiciary uh, become more and more hands-off when it comes to certain things, especially like Second Amendment and more permissive. So we'll see where those two things go. Okay. Thank you very much. And finally, I want to turn to Nika Schoonover, who has been our intern from the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. We've been very fortunate to have her with us this uh, legislative session, uh, and sad to say that your internship is now coming to an end. I guess you're probably not that sad about it. Um, but Nika, you covered quite a few things. I mentioned at the beginning we would talk about things that both happened and what didn't happen in the legislature. Uh, you covered, spent a lot of time covered covering uh, an issue that ended up not happening. Uh, can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, definitely. So uh, a week before the session officially ended, a, a sweeping cannabis reform bill was introduced that would address various reforms within the industry, including reforms for craft growers, dispensary operations, and licensing procedures, uh, particularly increasing the amount of canopy space craft growers can have, and then also allowing dispensaries uh, to operate drive-through windows and offer curbside pickup services. But 
this bill did not end up passing in the spring session and won't be considered until at least veto session in the fall because of a disagreement around Delta 8, which is found in small traces of hemp and cannabis plants and has been largely debated on its legality because it is derived from CBD and has raised concerns over safety. It's synthetic, and, right? That's like yes. a synthetic product to where you can't really just get it from growing the plant. You got to sort of do something somewhere along the line chemically to get it. Is that the way it works? Yes. Um, it is synthetically derived from the CBD plant. Um, and it's incredibly which, dangerous. Yeah. Uh, there have been cases in which people have gotten sick or been hospitalized because of the substance and it's not regulated by the FDA. So there are concerns that it should be regulated and or banned, but it's currently not either. So, yeah, right. So like the the issue with it is that there, there's kind of unclear guidance from the federal government. So a lot of states have begun regulating it. Um, you spoke to a lot of people on this. So what was the thought um, from someone like Representative LaShawn Ford in favor of uh, regulating it? Yeah, so Representative Ford, who was this bill sponsor, he wanted to regulate the substance because he thought that if it was banned outright, it would be the same thing at, with cannabis in the sense that we shouldn't ban this similar substance um, when we're trying to open up the cannabis industry and make that more equitable for people. Delta H shouldn't be a substance that is banned outright without making a concerted effort to find the best way to regulate it and keep it safe, um, but not to completely uh, bar it from access. Right. Uh, so part of the part of the idea behind the original um, legalized, legalized marijuana law was to uh, maybe reverse the effects of incarceration. So I think part of the, the thought process there was not incarcerating people by banning this substance and, and, you know, creating a new crime in Illinois. But then you spoke to some industry advocates as well. Yeah. Uh, so I spoke to uh, Pamela Altoff, who's the executive director of the Cannabis Business Association of Illinois. And she said that she uh, supports a ban because in addition to the fact that Delta 8 is synthetic, uh, it could be detrimental to the industry. Um, but other advocates as well uh, wanted to regulate it, regulate Delta 8 instead, like Peter Contos, who is the deputy director of the Cannabis Equity Illinois Coalition, and has said that they've been trying to push for lawmakers to regulate Delta 8 for over two years, but it's still um, an undecided issue. Okay. Well, listen, team, we're going to have to leave it there for this week and wrap it up. This has been Capital Cast. Capital Cast is a production of Capital News Illinois, a statehouse reporting project of the Illinois Press Foundation with significant funding from the Robert McCormick Foundation. Until next time, this is Peter Hancock with the rest of the CNI news team saying stay safe and thank you for listening.